welcome to the 702 Book Club meeting for March. This month's title is The Watcher on the Cast Iron Balcony by Hal Porter. With me, of course, is Geordie Williamson, our book club convener, literary critic, also literary critic at The Australian. Geordie, good morning. Morning, Deb. Hal Porter's prose first. Um, Here's a few paragraphs of the opening of The Watcher on the Cast Iron Balcony. In a half century of living, I have seen two corpses, two only. I do not know if this total is conventional or unconventional for an Australian of my age. The first corpse is that of a woman of 40. I see its locked and denying face through a lens of tears, and here, beyond the useless hullabaloo of my debut in grief, its unbelievable silence prophesying unbelievable silence for me. It is not until 28 years later that I see through eyes this time dry and polished as glass, my second corpse, which is that of a 73-year-old man. Tears? No tears, not any, none at all. The silence of this corpse is as credible as my own silence is to be, and no excuse for not lighting another cigarette. I light it, tearless, while the bereaved others scatter their anguish in laments like handbills. I am tearless because 28 years have taught that it is not the dead one should weep for, but the living. And that was the opening few paragraphs of The Watcher on the Cast Iron Balcony by Hal Porter. And Geordie, you can hear his toughness even from the outset. What an opening. It really is one of those... Kind of everything is contained in embryo that we're going to have unfold throughout the next 270 odd pages. And that sense that he is passing from a state of innocence into experience. But the point about Hal Porter's The Watcher on the Cast Iron Balcony is no one is ever innocent, least of all him, which makes it a dark book, beautiful, glittering, but very dark. Geordie, it's interesting because I read this book a long time ago, maybe even close to 30 years ago. And at the time, I suppose, I was a real innocent and I was starting out in journalism and I'd never read such elevated, descriptive passages in my whole life. And in a way, his story sort of resonated because um, it was largely set in Victoria. Uh, There was journalism in him. There was, um, you know, um, reflections on small-town life he can be very, very mean and caustic at times. And I could see sort of bits of my life in what he wrote. And now, reading it again, I'm wondering what I saw. I've changed so much and the book has stayed the same and it's the strangest of feelings to go back. Look, it's, it's a funny sort of thing. Books read us. We don't read them. Virginia Woolf says that what you should really do is read Hamlet every year of your life and your changing responses to the, to the play would form a kind of autobiography. And I think that you and I are absolutely at one in this because I first read it at um, University of Sydney under the tutelage of a man named Noel Rowe, who's one of the, the giants of, of, of the teaching of Auslit. And he was a, a former Jesuit, and he had some fascinating things to say about this book. And I was so taken up with it. But this time round, reading it, not that I admire it any less, but I do think that it is a hard-edged book. And I wonder to what degree that 
this young man who grew up in rural Victoria, as you say, um, with five siblings and and very, I mean, lower middle class, clinging on to gentility, the price he paid to become the sort of great national kind of autobiographer and playwright and 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 literateur, whether it cost him too much. And I certainly feel that running through the pages this time round. I had this note from a regular participant in the book club, Paula, and she says, um, I mightn't be able to listen to the discussion, so I'm sending my comments now, and she sent them to me um, via an email. I found the watcher on the cast iron balcony on my bookshelf. Inside the front leaf was my maiden name and the date 1970, the year I was married. How all have aged, including the prose style of Porter. She says that this time she found the book overwrought and the writing so self-conscious and posturing. She says that there are, uh, you know, Porter calls his many-jointed worlds. Um, you know, she sort of saw these, um, the bitterness and angst, she says, was melodramatic. Um, yes, even when he says he's being honest, one wonders at his self-deceit. You know, th- it's so true. And the other thing is this, was he the apple of his mother's eye? Did he was he actually a shocking misogynist who only ever saw his mother as the beautiful perfect creature to whom no other woman was equal because he he's scathing about many of the other women that he comes into contact with and yet for him his mother is this she is a towering person in the book his father, he, he keeps writing, where is father? Where is father? As though his father has completely disappointed him. The eyes are dry when the father comes along. It is true. And one wonders uh, the degree to which Porter seems to almost blame his own siblings for his mother being you know, removed in her virginal early beautiful form and reduced to this kind of you know sort of ragged creature he seems to think that the rest of the world has done this and one wonders to what degree he he escapes giving himself any responsibility he was obviously a kid who must have concerned his parents let's put it that way now I think the other interesting thing is how still because it's very much an exploration of him growing up and so there's some you know sort of teenage sexual tension in the book and he's trying to figure out you know um, about his own body and there's a lot of you know sort of daggy old experimentation goes on behind various shrubs in the school ground and beyond but there's also these wonderful passages where he describes quite cruelly some of the some of his cohorts in all of this and I can remember still how I read this line years ago he describes this um, passionate kind of meeting up with a with a young boy who's got all sorts of uh, designs on Hal Porter and they they get very very close to each other and Porter says his breath smells of jam <laughs> I thought to myself I remember I read it this time and I thought oh I remember how I read that the first time and I laughed too I think that's Mr McAllister isn't it yes uh, there is also that extraordinary moment where the young woman who Olwen who he is worshipped throughout his school years it's the mid 1920s and all the girls are getting their hair bobbed and when she finally gets her hair bobbed, she hands him publicly the envelope with the locks in it. And he says, I kept that longer than anything uh, else 
are my mother's letters. <laughs> but he never saw her again. <laughs> I wonder, have, how's our expectations of how writers will write and how uh, publishers will edit the work of writers also shifted? So I wonder how Porter's very florid style of, of writing, it's fantastically descriptive and, and very um, diverting when you read it, but at the same time, has writing changed? I think it has. But what you have to keep in mind is there is a tradition in Australian literature and indeed in the, the arts generally of people, especially before we hit the sort of 60s and we have a kind of our own cultural nationalism in place, of feeling that you had to take on board wholly and solely um, some other culture's kind of rules and norms. And that is true that with, with Porter to an extraordinary de degree because he's an autodidact. You know, he goes to Bansdale High School. He doesn't get the opportunities for that serious sort of um, polished education. He makes his way in the world and learns it himself. And that means he tries very hard and there's something exact about it, but so exact, you know, that he's had to learn it all himself and it happens again and again. But Porter is the first in Auslit to really sort of do this. I've learned so much. I'm so super sophisticated and cultured and verbose sometimes. Um, and you know that it's precisely because he's a country boy and he had to do it that way. I think the other interesting thing is the is that how resentful he is of his father and how he has a really big go at the Masonic Lodge um, in the you know that his that he got a job um, at the paper I think because of a flick of the apron down at the Masonic Lodge <laughs> and you think to yourself listen mate it's called a lucky break you know be grateful for something is he hates his father so much but he couldn't be grateful to him for even the smallest things I think that he is worth reading always Porter for being one of those people with a truly jaundiced eye and he looks at for instance that family of working class um, newly sort of new English immigrants just turned Australian really and he in, there's an extraordinary passage where he describes them eating the jam again jam at the table smearing it over their bread with the dog sort of circling around and in a single paragraph he demolishes what he sees to be the awful vilenesses of the Australian working class. I know, but it's a terrible snobbery, though. Isn't it? But it also turns on itself because he's too honest to say it's it, that what he finds is distasteful. He turns on himself as well and his own, um, you know, middle-class assumptions and he finds virtues there as well. I think that's what we've got to be careful with Porter, not to read him. And I do agree with the person who emailed in and said, look, you know, there, there is some some florid stuff here but there's such um truth telling as well even against his better judgment he's willing to actually find the good in that family in himself and in the community but it's often told in a very backhanded way now that's uh, the book club for this month um we've got to have uh, a new book though chosen for next month I think we needed an, a contemporary Australian classic this year. Uh, I don't mean classic to put you off. This is a living, breathing book. And I read it and was thrilled by it. And I really hope that Alex Miller, the author of Love Song, and that is the book, gets his third Miles Franklin for this one because he's been long listed. And it is just such a lovely, gentle, elegant, wise book set half in Melbourne and half in Paris. And it is a graceful book by uh, a master 
who is writing at the very height of his powers, I think. Wow, so a very timely one too, especially with Miles Franklin. Absolutely. Let's try and sort of get in and give him the push over the line. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me this morning, Geordie, as always. Geordie Williamson is our literary critic here on Mornings.